in Acts chapter 8. If you do have your Bible, I, I would invite you to, to open up and to follow along. What I love about narrative is it's just kind of a natural flowing story. This is just a story about Philip, but there's some things we're going to pick up. So we're going to walk through this together and pick up a few points. So here we see that Philip has left Samaria. We spent some time last time talking about Philip going to this region, the first sort of expansion of the church into the region of Samaria, and talked about how he was watering some of those seeds that our Lord Jesus had planted during his own ministry. And there was a lot of fruit there. And as we sort of saw Philip move through that region here, we, we see now he's, now he's moving onward. From there, it says that he goes south to a road between Jerusalem and Gaza. So to give you an idea, he's traveling southward towards the coast. All right, so this is a road going out of the region. And it always says, by the way, it always says down from Jerusalem because of elevation. The idea is when you go to Jerusalem, you go up to, to the heights to, to go into worship floor. So anyways, for any of you who think this is, this is weird saying down, it's, it's down not just south, but it's down because of the height, the mountain, uh, that sort of an idea. But he goes to this road and he meets up with this individual here, but I kind of want to set the pace because it or set the scene because we can sometimes think, uh, you know, sort of in in I don't know if you have an illustrated Bible, but when I was a kid, I had an illustrated Bible, so I think about those different pictures that I saw. So, uh, so Philip is walking along, and here is you know you might think here's just one one guy standing in a chariot. Most likely, it was more than one guy. We don't even know his name. In my notes, he's EE -E for Ethiopian eunuch. That's not his name though. But he, so he's there most likely with more than one person. It was dangerous to travel, especially such a long distance that he had to travel by yourself. He most likely had a, a bunch of people with him. But here's, here's the point that I want to really kind of land on with Philip, is as he's traveling, he, he, he sees this individual, and he's an Ethiopian. You know, a foreigner, a Gentile, someone not Jewish, from how they would look. The spirit talks to Philip and leads him and says for him to go over and join the chariot. And so what, what does Philip do? He doesn't meander. He doesn't saunter. He doesn't walk over. It says that he ran. I don't know the context, what the terrain looked like. don't know any of those things, but the Spirit told Philip to do a thing, and he ran. And I think that's one of the aspects, we, if, you, if you're one of those who writes in your journal, when the Spirit speaks, you, you run like Philip. I think that might be a, a nice little thing to kind of put in the back of our heads, run like Philip. Because when that Spirit calls, he, he goes over. Whatever weirdness there may have been between Jew and Gentile, it, it, it didn't matter. When the Spirit said to go, he went. And so he runs over, and he, and he uh, meets this Ethiopian. And as he walks up, he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah. Probably wouldn't have guessed that that's what he would have heard as he walked up. But as he walks up, he meets this Ethiopian who is reading. So, a couple things. We, we don't know much about this official, but we do find out he is an official from Ethiopia. It says he's actually from the court of Candace the Queen. So that, it's not her name, 
Candace. Candace is, is most likely like a title, like Pharaoh, queen in the Ethiopians. And there's a lot we could go into about the history between the Jewish people and that region of Africa going all the way back to King Solomon. But regardless, what we understand about this man is that he had a copy of the scriptures and was reading it, which is pretty amazing. Those weren't in great supply, but he had one, which we can sort of decipher that he took this very seriously. He was traveling from Jerusalem back down, so he was traveling to Jerusalem. So this this man was a, a proselyte, and he was a worshiper of Yahweh. And the only reason we would say that is why else would an official like that be traveling specifically to Jerusalem? Well, he could have been on a diplomatic mission, I suppose. But why is he reading God's word? And so he's there reading, and Philip asks, do you understand that? And How can I unless someone teaches me, unless someone explains it to me? And so here it says that he, starting with that passage, told him the good news of Jesus. I get a lot of the uh, road to Emmaus kind of feelings about this sort of thing. So he has a question and he just launches off. I could just imagine Philip going all over the place talking about different points, different things. This man, worshiper of Yahweh, probably had a lot of those pieces there and Philip just really connected those dots. And then it says that the chariot stops. So at some point, they were both in the chariot and they start moving. So here's Philip willing to travel along with this guy as far as they need to go. But then they come to some water. And they apparently had enough of a good conversation for the eunuch to say, hey, there's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And from Philip's actions, the answer was nothing. They got down in the water. I don't know if they ran, like the spirit leading Philip, but it might be dangerous running into the water, but they got in the water, and he was baptized. It's It's a pretty cool story. But probably the coolest part is the fact that after the baptism... Philip just teleports away. He's just gone. Just found himself in another city. It was pretty cool. Uh, I was joking with somebody. You you have that story. You have the story with Samson. You have the story with Elijah outpacing the chariot. You basically have the X-Men here in in Scripture. So it's kind of fun. And uh, why why would the Bible be boring? So many fun stories about these things. But anyway, he disappears. He reappears somewhere else. And he just continues. He's like, I'm just going to keep on going. And he just keeps traveling and sharing the gospel, the good news. I love that it uses the word here, the good news about Jesus. Because for someone who's reading through Isaiah, who's trying to understand, isn't Jesus just great news? I think we forget sometimes the gospel means good news, that that's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be good news people. Not just informative people, but good news people. People already have tons of bad news. We're supposed to bring good news. The good news about Jesus. So there's so many cool things about Philip that we learn in this passage. And I I really do want to say, I hope that we hang on to that one idea that when the Spirit leads us, that we run. 
it'd be cool to be teleported to. I don't know if it's appropriate to pray about that, but that's pretty neat as well. But we learn a lot about Philip and what he's doing. What's so interesting is last time we talked about Philip going to Samaria. Now Philip is witnessing and sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch, which most likely was part of a, a caravan, a group of people. And don't you think that would have been a great conversation to have from there on, on onward? Maybe there was even more conversions that took place at that point. But one other thing to remember, as he's traveling back down to Ethiopia, the movement of the gospel doesn't go from the Middle East to Europe, as a lot of people think. The gospel was in Africa long before it was in Europe. At least a decade longer. And so this idea and this concept that, that it was Europeans who brought the gospel to Africa is incorrect, to say the least. And believe me, when I go to Uganda, they, they remind me all the time that, you know, it was in Africa first. Remember that. They, they, they latch on to that with this, with this understanding that that first movement of the gospel outside of Israel, outside of those people, it went down to Africa and grew. And definitely if you study history and going into uh, a few centuries later, it did grow in that whole region there. Uh, as Paul was, had moved uh, north, northwest into, into Europe. So, Anyway, a pretty cool thing. Now, I do want to spend some, some extra time here because we could, we could really camp here and talk about some of the history of Africa and some of the other things, but I think there's something that's actually more important for us to deal with and to talk through as it's connected with this passage, and that has to do with the Ethiopian eunuch himself. So there's a re- we're going to focus in on this, this one verse where he asks, see here there's water, verse 36. There's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? There's a reason he's asking this question. Why? Why is he asking this question? Ten years ago, I I preached this at some other church um, in town. Pastor was out. I ended up filling in. We spent a lot of time talking about kind of race relations because he's Ethiopian, right? We talked about the race and those different things. And honestly, in the early church, it, it's a, it suffice to say that it wasn't really an issue. There, there was a lot of movement within the Roman Empire, a lot of different people moving all over the place. And it wasn't as big a deal as we might have thought as far as the growth of the gospel was concerned. And especially after this interaction, I'm sure you can see if that carried on that way. Not, there's not much to talk about there. But what is actually pretty amazing is not the fact that he was African, but it was the fact that he was a eunuch. This is what is far more interesting, especially for Philip being a Jew and for their interaction in baptism. Deuteronomy 23. If we turn there. I know many of you probably had your devotions here this morning. Deuteronomy 23. Look at verse 1 here. I get to say it in church. Verse 20, verse 1 out of chapter 23. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And we'll stop there. There's a lot of other things that happen after this and a lot of random laws, but that, that's really where we're concerned with here. And this right here impacts the eunuch. So the eunuch was a worshiper of Yahweh. But if he went to Jerusalem and went to the temple, he could not 
join the assembly. Because a eunuch is who they're talking about here. Someone is a eunuch has had this done to them, sometimes so they can perform a certain task, sometimes it's, it's a punishment, maybe they were captured, maybe they, uh, from war or something, prisoner of war, something like that. Whatever that looks like, this was done in order to make them sometimes more trustworthy, if that's the right word to use, depending on what they were doing and what they were accomplishing. Sometimes it was just to remove the aggression that naturally has its place with men from their, uh, from their hormones. It's no longer a thing. And it also ends a line. So they can't have children. Right? So there's many different reasons why it would be done. This here, this this law might sound harsh, and some people could say, well, what, why would God do that? Why would, why would God make it so they can't enter? Well, there was a lot of reasons why someone might not be able to enter the assembly. This uh, temple practice was done in order to be a shadow, a picture of what was to come, right? You could ask the same reason. Why can't that lamb be sacrificed? Well, it has a blemish. Well, why, what's wrong with that lamb? Well, there's nothing really technically wrong with it, but God is trying to show a picture of what his worship is like, why there's separation, those types of things. Now, not just this law, but so many other laws would lead you to understand, wow, I'm a sinner. I don't really belong in the presence of God. I can't actually go into the presence of God myself. And so a lot of these laws were... were were instituted as a picture of what would come when Jesus came and, and make things whole. Hebrews 10 deals with this. Galatians 2 also deals with this idea and this concept that it's not the law that saves, but that's a picture of what Jesus was going to accomplish and what he was going to do. But this law did impact our friend the Ethiopian eunuch. And so when he's hearing the gospel and he's hearing about Jesus, by the way, they were going through this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. That's where this passage is coming from. It's very clearly and explicitly about our Savior and his suffering. A great launching point for him to talk about the good news of Jesus. So this eunuch here all of a sudden has this realization Perhaps in his mind, perhaps in his heart, at some point he says, maybe there's something that keeps me from really wholly and completely being a part of this. And so then that question comes up and he says, there's some water, why can't I be baptized? And it's interesting how he asked it. We don't have Philip actually answering, but he answered with his actions. They both just went down in the water. There is now no reason why he can't be a part of the assembly. He's now fully a part. He's made fully and completely a part of the church. Um, not much of a follow-up conversation because when they came back up, he was gone. So we don't know what Philip shared specifically, but it was enough for this eunuch to say, I want, I want that. I want to be a part of that. And I know... For uh, so many of us as we study through scripture, there's some of these passages that seem kind of odd. That's not really our culture. That's not really what we're 
familiar with. And so then when we go through some of these explanatory things, we say, ah, I see, this was something that was really important for that generation or that for that time. But for us, we may not have that issue. But there are other issues. And in fact, this does move us to talk about a very hot-button topic that I think it's important for us to discuss. And since the scripture led us this far, it's good for us to talk about this. So specifically, I think that we would all say, just like Philip, there is no barrier to anyone coming to Jesus to be a disciple of Jesus, to submit to Jesus, to be a part of the assembly. There's no barrier to any disciple of Jesus to become an, a part of our family and to be with us, right? There's, there's nothing that would keep anyone from, from that. There is no barrier. And I think that's really important for us to, to really talk about. And this story lets us talk about that hot topic, hot topic item, which, uh, you know, what month is it? It's June, which is also called Pride Month, right? Which all, you know, all we could do is just call it, say, you know, just calling it Pride, Pride is a sin, we could just leave it at that. Moving on. But there's more, right? There's more because of what is discussed here. So, what we're going to talk about is what, where this passage goes. In the acronym that's used, and we all know it by now, at least the first part, it's actually quite longer than most of us say, but the, the acronym that's used, we are only going to be talking about the T and the Q tonight. And there's a reason. Because what we're talking about with the Ethiopian eunuch lends itself to some of the matters that take place with those topics. Most of it with the T, with trans, transgenderism. So we're going to talk about that because there's implications for us as followers of Jesus as to how we should act. Right? Just to kind of lay some groundwork here, what we're going to talk about is in generality. Right? That's really all we have time for is some general topics, gen general conversation, general comments on, on some of these things, but like a few different things. Transgenderism, which let's just say we can't hide from it, right? It is everywhere. It's, it's, it's all over the place, and that's on purpose. But what's on purpose is not necessarily what's being presented. There's, there's more to this story, but transgenderism is not the same as homosexuality or same sex attraction. It's, it's just not. And the fact that they group them all together is more having to do with a political or a voting block than really actually what they would hold to, what they would believe. They're not one happy community that comes together. It's just that's not how it is. And in fact, has nothing to do, and this might sound weird, but transgenderism really has nothing to do with sexuality, which is confusing because that is how it is presented, and that's how it is expressed is in some of those categories, but that's not what it's about. Really doesn't have anything to do with that. It has more to do with identity than anything else. And of course there's implications to human sexuality that we do need to kind of discuss. So, but the first thing I want to talk about is maybe not where you 
probably didn't think we were going to go this way here, but I think that perhaps, if I could be bold enough to say this, the church has done a terrible job of addressing this topic. And I actually want to say that I think the church has done a disservice to itself and in general the gospel. Because there's an opportunity that I think was squandered. Transgenderism, usually for the individual, and everyone has their own reasons. You can talk to an individual. Everyone has their own individual reasons for the decisions that they make, right? But in general, a lot of the things that have taken place from the testimonies that I've been able to read but from people, from, from a lot of their stories, has a lot to do with trauma, response to poor family life, even autism, different social and emotional disorders, and, and even poor health. All of these things play together more so in impacting some of the decisions that someone would make concerning those things, concerning transgenderism. And here's where I think the church has failed. A large segment of a generation started remarking that who they were inside didn't match up with who they were outside. Or their immaterial self was incongruent with their material self. Church, we totally missed the boat on this. This was, and still is, one of the biggest philosophical shifts in popular culture that has taken place maybe in hundreds of years. Where you have people who are saying, I have an immaterial self that is, has needs and I have problems and this is in response to, or for, well, since the Scopes trial. If you don't know what that is, that's, the Scopes trial is, is really this hinge in American history where evolution started to be taught in schools. This was the beginning of just generally understood materialism. We're just all a, a bunch of atoms and molecules with electric firing cells in our brains that make us feel feelings or have memories, but we're not really anything inside. That's what came from that. This presented a major shift. And let's just be honest, most of us in the church were so distracted by either political issues, social issues, other things having to do with it, we missed it. There's a whole segment of a generation who is saying, I have an immaterial self. I don't know what to do with it, right? And we missed it. It's a huge shift in biblical understanding for humanity to all of a sudden understand that, right? Side note, if you want to dive into some of the other weirdness, I think, in order for the eschatological position of the world to be where it's presented in Revelation, there has to be a shift from simple materialism to include supernaturalism. Otherwise, how are you going to get the whole world to worship an antichrist as God? There has to be a sociological shift for that to take place. This might have been it. And it got away from us. We missed it. And we're arguing on things that don't matter. At least don't matter as much. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 15. I won't wait for you to get there. I'm just going to go. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Notice the division there, right? Visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is all, I'm sorry, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. Pause there for a second. There is just a natural going back and forth between the material, the immaterial, the physical, the the, uh, the non-physical, the, the visible, the invisible. This is our understanding of the world. Verse, where do we leave off? 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by his uh, making peace by the blood of his cross here is the point that we need to grab onto is Jesus didn't come to save souls and I know when we say save souls I know what we mean we mean to save people because we identify people with that immaterial self but what Jesus didn't just come to save souls he came to save all of us our whole being our heart, our soul, our mind, our bodies. The resurrection has a lot to do with our physical body in addition to everything else. God came to save all of us. Jesus came to redeem all of us. That was his focus. He came in the flesh to save our whole selves. And this is a major point in our theology. So we'll dive into the weird for just a second here, but... Christ followers, all of you and everyone else, we should realize and we should embrace the fact that transgenderism is a form of Gnosticism which says your immaterial self is opposed to your physical self. It's greater than your physical self, but that provides us a platform to talk about the gospel in a way that would not be understood in other generations because we'd have to fight materialism. You don't have to fight it anymore. You get to just talk about the fact that, yes, you do have an immaterial self, and it's important. That's where we get to start. It provides a platform for us to discuss things that are real. Now, most people who have an issue with viewing their immaterial self and their material self in an incongruent way, they don't talk to people who have a worldview that is fit to have that kind of a discussion. They talk to people who are usually, I say usually, right? Everybody's mileage might different, but they usually will want to deal with the material self. Why do you think most of these conversations go one direction? Your immaterial self is having a problem. Well, do something to your physical self and that'll fix it. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense to me, but it makes sense to a materialist. And all of a sudden, it starts to make sense to a lot of people who don't know what to do with this. We are the professionals and the practitioners of the physical and the supernatural, but we have left the table. We don't discuss it. We still want to play around over here and pretend that we're materialists to have some kind of clout with the heavy hitters. I could care less what Richard Dawkins says. He has no authority. 
Why are we not instead having conversations with people who do want to talk about their immaterial self? That's the nature of this battle is part of it is we're distracted. We get distracted by the social political arguments, concerns over culture war, things like that. And then we miss the opportunity. Without, without going to a completely different passage to do exegesis there, I think we know enough about this passage to just go through it. But in Genesis 1, most things go back to Genesis 1, don't they? First few chapters at least. What we actually see there is the setup for the deception that we see. And that's what it is. In Genesis, we are introduced to the created order by the creator. So many of our modern social political issues go back to this time, goes back to this deception that we saw or we see in the garden in this account in Genesis. You can turn there if you'd like to, but we're just going to talk about it. There was that deception from the serpent. And the serpent came and he had a very specific conversation. So the way that this all worked was you had Adam, you had Eve. Right? There's a whole story there, right? But when you get down to it, you have man and you have woman. That is the created order. There are people who get canceled, they get left for saying that, but there's reasons for that too, which we're getting to. But there's a man and there's a woman, and God gives them commands as humanity, as mankind, humankind. And I bet you we could list them off, right? Be fruitful and multiply. That's the first one. Fill the earth. Have dominion and subdue it. And then there's a little gap there, but he says that God says to them, you may eat of any tree except. So there's freedom with some boundaries. Let me just tell you, parents, you probably know this, some boundaries make freedom a lot easier, right? Give a few boundaries, and that usually makes it easier for for discipline, easier to uh, call your children to account, to give account to you for the things they've done if you set good boundaries, Right. So then you have the serpent, and the serpent lies. The serpent's intent is to ruin creation. God said it's very good. Satan, or the serpent says, I want to make it not very good. So look how the conversation goes. Did God actually say, it's very interesting how he put it, that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's a really weird way to say it. But did, did God say that there were, that you couldn't eat anything? And it forced the woman to have to answer, well, no. We can eat from anything, but there's the boundary. So it brings the boundary up naturally. Then there's the question of why. So this whole conversation is really calling into question not only God's created order, but what he has said, his commands. And it calls into question God's goodness and his intention. It calls all these things into question, right? So these false boundaries that he brings up, it calls into question all those different things. And let me just say, the fact that all of those different things are questioned led to ruin in the garden, and it leads to ruin today. It's the same 
thing because the promise from the serpent was, oh, you know, all you have to do is eat from this and you'll be like God. That's why God doesn't want you to eat of it, right? So there's a promise. There's a promise to transcend the boundaries that God has presented in order for you to have this false kind of freedom that doesn't really exist. For someone to want to go beyond the boundaries of the created order that has been established for humans, there is a philosophy around that. And that is called transhumanism. Started all the way in the garden. You can go beyond what a human is. You can go beyond what the boundaries are. You can go and do that. At that time, it meant a certain thing. Today, it means something a whole lot more. This whole concept and idea of transgenderism is not an end in of itself. It's a stepping stone. Because the next stepping stone, which has been talked about in a bunch of papers from the 70s and 80s and 90s, the stepping stone is, once you get to transgenderism and that's accepted, the next step is postgenderism. Well, there is no gender at all any, at any, in any way. You don't pick it. It just doesn't exist. And the very next step is total transhumanism because you have destroyed the family, you've destroyed the created order, you've destroyed everything. How people naturally understand themselves and relate to each other, totally gone. So you have to then replace it with something else. Same lie that you get from the serpent. It is the same thing. Part of the deception is for you to think it's a new thing today. It's not a new thing. It just is wearing different clothes that have a rainbow. Which, by the way, it's not a rainbow because there's only six colors, right? Rainbows have how many colors? Seven. So they didn't steal the rainbow. We still got it, as some people would say, right? The rainbow has seven colors. Seven. Interesting number. But there are bigger issues. But what the enemy gets to do is to use this to destroy families, limit human purpose, create a scenario where you no longer stand what is, understand what is good and evil, but then all of a sudden good is evil and evil is good. Ultimately, it leads to total separation from God in a general sense. And that is something the serpent, that's something that the enemy would like to have in every family in America, every family in the world, is to destroy it. Same objective as the serpent in the garden. Lies. And those lies look different today. I don't know if you can see all my handwriting, but here's a whole bunch of notes, different details on these things. It's just, a, just a few, just a few of how, how the lie looks different today. When there is a, a young person, and, and let's just be honest, I know there's adults who deal with this, but it's generally young people today because a lot of the driving force is social media or what's called social contagion that pushes things forward. And it's been used in the media for a long time on a lot of different topics. But one of those lies that's there that scares parents is in this line. I've seen it so many different places when I was researching this. Wouldn't you rather have a living son than a dead daughter? Wouldn't, wouldn't you rather see them not gone from this world in some form that your child is still around? There's no numbers to support any of that. This idea that if you don't affirm someone's choices concerning their own gender, that they're somehow more susceptible to suicide. 
There is no evidence. But what that sounds like is a threat. If you don't do this, that's what's going to happen. And it's one of those really tricky little lies that has been used because now, if you deny that that is the only path forward, which is to go towards transition, you are called someone hateful who wants someone to die. I don't want anyone to die, not without hearing the gospel. I don't want anyone to all of a sudden lose their life. But that's a threat. That's a lie. In fact, a lot of the people who are going through these different questions, listen to the questions that you hear most often. I'm uncomfortable in my body. Weren't we all uncomfortable in our body during puberty? But now, it's a little bit different. And that's not the only thing, but they'll say things like, I'd be happier if... You can fill in the blank. I'd be, I'd be happier if... And for us, it might be something material. It might be somewhere else. We might say, oh, if I would be happy if all my debt was paid off. I'd be, oh, I'd be happy if I got a raise at work. But for someone who's dealing with issues of the internal and with the heart, I'd, I'd be happy if this thing about me changed. Right? I'd love myself more if this happened. I would be loved more if I made these decisions. If I could just be a man, if I could just be a woman, then I'd be happy. That just sounds like just sin. Because you can fill in the blank with whatever the other end. It's the same thing. The struggles might be specific in the details, but the struggles are the same. But the lie is that the only way for someone to get over this, get over it, is to go through a transition, to physically do something. And so the pathway there, and this I think is very telling, and, and I'll just be honest, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but just a couple of things just to kind of show the deception. Oh, the first thing is puberty blockers, and the second thing is hormone therapy. So th these are huge steps in and of themselves. I mean, the hormone system, the, it's not well understood. So, you know, let's just tinker with it, I guess. I was going to say, do you remember? No, I'm, I don't think any of you remember. You heard about lobotomies? That was all the rage. Everybody was getting a lobotomy. Literally, you could go to Central Park and get a lobotomy in the park. It became this huge thing until they realized, wow, shoving a needle through your eye socket up into your brain and severing a connection in your brain is not good. And then all of a sudden, just the, the demand fell off a cliff. And you look back on it, and you say, that was barbaric. What in the world are people thinking? Just because someone might say, that's your only path to get some kind of relief, doesn't mean that's true. So it's not well understood. The third option, the third step is top-bottom surgeries. Number four, the fourth step is facial surgeries and other surgeries. Maybe removal of lit ribs, different things to, to make it just so much more evident that you are not who you were before. But the last one is the most threatening one. Lifelong treatment. It doesn't end. 
it always is going to continue. And yeah, someone said cash cow. I just heard it. I'm, I'm assuming it was Hunstock. Um, $7 million on average per person who goes through this decision. So you tell me, is there any kind of incentive for someone else to say this is a good idea? Sounds like a lie to me. And we know, because we have the gospel and know these things, that it is a lie. A couple of other things. Tavistock, have you heard of Tavistock? Tavistock is the, it was the one and the biggest gender um, like clinic in England, served the UK. They found that there was a rise in 10 years from 500 people identifying as transgender to 5,000 in that stiff climb. And what they also found was in that group, about 48% were autistic. These are not people who are dealing with only one thing. There are many things happening. They're being taken advantage of. And there are parents who are said, hey, if you don't do something, your child is going to die. Who will follow through with it? It's a lie. Side note, Tavistock is due to be closed. And so are the other major clinics in Scandinavia. Because they came to find out that there was no medical help given. They were not improved at all by going through these programs. And so they were closed. At least the medical communities there have enough sense to end something that has no benefit. What, sadly, in the United States, it's ramping up. I'm, um, I'm going to make myself available. Got a bunch of stuff. If anyone has any questions or want to talk about these different things, I'll I'll be I'll be by the fireplace because that's around fires one of the best places that conversations happen. Um, so I'll be I'll be back there if you want to talk a little bit more about this about this topic. But the last sort of statistic that I think is really important are two. Eighty percent of the people affected by this are girls. The media tends to focus a lot on the other, males who dress like women, but it's 80% girls. So families with daughters, good conversations need to happen because there's a targeting that's happening, which means 20% of boys. But the other statistic is if nothing is done, 80% of people grow out of this, what's called gender dysphoria. They grow out of it by the time they reach adulthood. So there is a targeted area, a a certain perspective that's targeted with this. So it means for us, how, okay, so what do we do with all this? Let me just say, it's too big for us to individually go and change something. I'll, I'll just be clear, the, the issue, the big issue is not bathrooms and the big issue is not sports. And it's not selling chess binders in Target. Those aren't the biggest issues. Church, we, 
we have received a reputation, whether it was earned or not, that we don't, not only do we not care about people who are struggling with these types of issues, but that we want them dead. I don't know where that came from, and I don't know why. I think it's based on that idea that if you do nothing, that they'll off themselves. And we'd say, don't do anything. So then they just put two and two together and get five. We, I mean, I know, I know most of you very, very well. I don't think anyone here wants anyone to die. But that's our reputation. That's what we have. If you say you're a Christian, that's the reputation that they will go from, generally. Am I wrong? Sapinski is shaking his head. Brothers and sisters, we need to be like Philip. Take it back to Philip. We need to run where the Spirit draws our attention to. If your attention is being drawn to this issue, if your attention is being drawn to this issue in regards to individuals, you need to run to those individuals with good news. If someone is suffering with these sort of feelings, these sort of issues, this, this sort of agenda maybe, we need to run with them with good news. They get no good news from anyone except that you have to change yourself. Take a drug and it'll change who you are. Have a surgery and it'll change who you are. We get to bring good news to say, Jesus loves you and created you as you are. And we can't see our own sin. We need to be making disciples. And let me just say this. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch, there is going to be a segment of a generation who have made terrible decisions for themselves, physically, who will find rejection from most people because of that in some way. We need to be like Philip. We need to run to them and give them good news. We need to let them know there's water here. There's nothing that keeps you from being baptized. And once they have made that decision to follow Jesus, they need family. Because many of them who make the most extreme decisions no longer have the ability to function properly within a family. They won't be able to have kids. And so we need to embrace them as aunts and uncles, sons, daughters in the faith. All right, there's going to be a large chunk of a generation that needs that. Are you ready? Because you need to be. Whatever you need to deal with, as far as the social, political, whatever, you need to deal with it because it's going to be necessary for us to be able to deliver the, uh, to deliver the gospel. That's just how it is. And I pray that the Lord would use us, especially in a county like this, that there's so much affirmation of sin and instead we need to affirm someone's identity in a created human in their identity that they can have in Jesus. That's what we need to spend our time affirming. And that's what we need to do and to accomplish, to accomplish what Jesus called us to do. We need to humble ourselves to do this 
to deliver the message of a Savior who is ready to save and run to those situations just like Philip. Lord, Father, God Almighty, we, Lord, pray for, we pray for our society, we pray for, Lord, just in general, a people who don't know you, who may recognize some of your created order, and yet the enemy lies to the point of them being lost. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us fitting ministers of the gospel, that we would deliver good news. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a love and a concern and an attention for those who are in desperate need of good news. Lord Jesus, I pray you would stir our hearts to the point where we can't do anything but to run. To run to them to deliver this good news, Lord, that your name might be uplifted, that you might be worshipped, that you might, Lord, save some of us, that we might be found in you and in glory. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would push against extremes of the social political order, that we might, as followers of you, Lord, recognize that it is the same battle that we have been fighting for generations and generations. For those of us who would call ourselves your servants who are found in the light, Lord, I pray that you would take us to places of darkness. I pray you would bring us into conversations, into relationships with people who need you. Lord Jesus, please use us. And I pray out of refuge that there would be many, many who would run to them with good news. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Yeah. Uh-huh.